Turn with me then in your Bibles to Colossians and chapter 1. We'll be focusing mainly on Colossians 1 and some verses towards the end, um, but in reality we will be handling uh, some material from most of the book of Colossians. So after this sermon, when you're going to bed tonight, just before you drop off, um, be a good idea if you wanted to, you could read the whole book of Colossians. It doesn't take too long and hopefully uh, after this evening it will, uh, it will do you more good than usual. Hopefully. We'll see. So Colossians. Uh, some stupid questions for you, first of all. Who is uh, Paul writing to? He's writing to some Christians. See it there in verse 2, to the saints. He's writing to Christians. You have it in verse 4, 5, 6, 7. Talking to Christians who have received the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, put their faith in him, been forgiven all of their sins. This one's harder. Why is he writing? It's an important question, isn't it? Because the answer to that is going to define how you read the book. Why does he write it? It seems that since these Christians in Colossae had received the gospel and become Christians, been forgiven all of their sins, added into the church now, eternal life granted to them in Jesus' name, since they've become Christians... There have been some competing theories that have been circling around in the church. These theories have crept in about perfection. Theories for living the Christian life. Theories for sanctification, progress. They're asking questions not so much, how am I saved? How do I be saved? What do I do to have eternal life? They're asking questions like, now that I'm saved, since I'm saved, how do I become perfect? How do I reach a hope of glory? And so Paul is writing to them to warn them and us now about these theories, these theories of perfection, and to bring us back to the only way to continue. So what are these three theories? Depending on your Bible uh, translation or the copy that you have, you might have some clues in the headings. The first theory of perfection is philosophy, learning, knowledge. You get that in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, and especially in chapter 2, verses 4 and 8. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world. These people who subscribe to this theory said, having believed in Jesus Christ, now I have to fill my head with knowledge. I have to learn things. I have to expand my knowledge and my understanding. I have to learn all the theology I can. If I can do that, maybe I can reach a hope of glory. The second theory goes like this. Holy living. Sometimes we call it legalism. 
And this seems to be a bit of a bigger problem in the church because Paul gives it chapter 2, verse 11, all the way down to verse 23. Especially, you find it in verses 16, 18, and 21 to 23. Now, this little theory, the people subscribing to this very common one, says, they say this, having believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and been forgiven of all of our sins and received eternal life in his name, now I have to keep these rules. I have to do this and not do that. I have to eat this and not eat that. That was a big one for the time about food laws. I, have to, I can go to this place, I can't go to that place. I can wear these clothes, not these clothes. I can sing these songs and not these songs. Rules. And if I can do that, if I can make myself holy enough, having been saved, maybe I can reach a hope of glory. The third theory goes like this. Lawlessness. It's almost the opposite. Sometimes, if you want the big word, we call this antinomianism. Antinomian means against the law. Now, what these people were saying, and this is an even bigger problem than the last one, chapter 3, all of chapter 3, and a little bit of chapter 4 as well, what they said is, having believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, been forgiven of all my sin, I've been set free from the law. I don't have to follow the Ten Commandments anymore. I now have to explore the very extremities of the freedom that I have in Jesus Christ. Now I must really live the life of the Spirit. I must uh, sort of throw off any rules, any law. I can act as I like. I can even sin if I want to, because that's only going to show how much more loving and forgiving God is. And if I can do that well enough, maybe I can reach the hope of glory. And so those three theories were knocking around the church and they were considered to be paths of perfection in the Christian life. Knowledge, piety, and freedom. If we do this, we will be perfect. If we do this, we will be sanctified. You can boil them down like this. Yes, the Lord Jesus has saved us, but these things will take us further. Now, what do you think about those theories? They're quite interesting, aren't they? As you can tell, I suspect, they're quite attractive, aren't they? They sound quite good. And what's worse is they even contain grains or even lumps of truth, don't they? Are we to grow in knowledge? Of course we are. Look at chapter 1, verse 9. Paul is praying all the time. He doesn't stop praying, asking that we would be filled with the knowledge of his will. Are we supposed to live holy lives, having been saved? That's a no-brainer. Of course we are. Look there at verse 10 of chapter 1. That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and strengthened again there in the knowledge and freedom. We are supposed to explore the freedom, know the freedom that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. You get that in chapter 2 and verse 16. But here, something about these is horrible. Paul the Apostle, he sees these theories and he knows that there's something about them that is so dangerous to the Christian, that's to you and to me, dangerous, that he insists now to kill them all. 
to put them in the ground and bury them for good. How does he do that? How does he construct this argument in Colossians? How does Colossians feature as a death blow to these three very attractive, some half-truths theories? What he does is he spends chapter 1 making a nail. Making a, he's crafting this nail, which he then, for the rest of the book, proceeds to just bash into the brains of these theories. This one nail is going to kill them all off. It's going to see them all off. One answer, one blow, one weapon is going to kill them all. What is it? Jesus is enough. It's as simple as that to Paul. Jesus is enough for you. That is the nail that is going to kill all of these theories of perfection. And that's what we're going to see this evening. The point that that Paul labours all the way through the book is that it's Christ who saves you and it is he who perfects you. You know the Beatles song, All You Need Is Love. I think Paul's going around saying, all you need is the Lord Jesus. That's all you need. You need nothing else to be perfect. In fact, anything else is probably going to do you some harm. It will bring you to death. Jesus is the beginning of the Christian life, isn't he? We know that. We've all been there, I trust. He's the end of the Christian life. How does Jesus describe himself? Do you remember? I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. You'll know this first. You can finish it with me. He who began a good work in you, the Lord Jesus, he will bring it to a completion. He will complete that work. The Lord Jesus, Hebrews says, is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And so Paul is going to kill off these theories now and bring us back to Jesus Christ, to a life in him, and say he is enough. And going back into life with the Lord Jesus really is the right way to consider what Paul is doing in Colossians. If you look at chapter 1, verses 3 to 8, which we read a moment ago, just scan over those verses And look at all those past tenses. He says in verse 4, you have Jesus Christ already. In verse 6 he says, you're already bearing fruit in the Lord Jesus. In verse 8 he says, you already have the Holy Spirit. In verse 5 he says, you already have the hope of glory. Look at there, chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. He says, You who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Perfect. What do you think is the killer blow? The killer blow, the pointy end of that nail, that which really does kill them. Our text for this evening is chapter 1 of Colossians, verses 27 and 28, where Paul says this mystery to the Gentiles, he says, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
Christ in you is the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. So let's spend the rest of our time looking at this little phrase, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now how about another stupid question? The first word is Christ, Christ in you. The stupid question goes like this, who is it? Who is this? Well, you know, it's, it's Jesus of Nazareth, isn't it? That's a first century Jewish carpenter who lived in Galilee. Well, yes, that's true. But in the context of Colossians 1, how does Paul speak about the Lord Jesus Christ before he actually makes that statement? Look there at verses 15 to 20, some of the grandest verses in Scripture, surely, where he says the Lord Jesus is our God. He is our God. In verse 16, he says, This Christ who is in you is the creator of all things. Every one of the countless stars that occupies our night sky, he made them, and he knows where they are. All the stars that make up all of those galaxies, millions and billions and trillions and numbers that we just can't even enter our minds, they're so enormous, these numbers. He just made them. He spoke them into being. He is the word that made these things. All those mountains, we can't even imagine how much they weigh or how long they've been there. The Lord Jesus, he made them. All the viruses that have ravaged our world this year, he made them. Our pets, our children, the internet over which we're watching this sermon if we're at home, the seats we're sitting in, the clothes we're wearing, everything. He made it all. John, 1, chapter, uh, cha- John chapter 1, verse 3 says, He made everything. There's nothing that he didn't make. He also says in Colossians, yeah, in verse 17 of chapter 1, he's not just the creator of all things. He's the preserver of all things. He says, in him all things consist. Now, we don't really talk like that anymore, um, but what this phrase means, in him all things hold together. Paul is saying that the only reason that you and I don't just burst into flames or bubbles or just disintegrate or just crumble away is because the Lord Jesus, by the word of his power, Hebrews 1 says, holds us together. Put it this way, if the Lord Jesus, now on the throne of glory, just stopped thinking about you for an instant, you would simply cease to be. You just stop existing. Every heartbeat that we have begins because he starts it, and it actually gets to the end because he sustains it. Every wave that washes up the beaches that we like to walk on or used to like to walk on when we could go to them, they start and they end because he is sustaining them. And this Christ is in you. He is the inheritor of all things, verse 20. All things were made through him and for him. His name is written on every atom of this universe and one day as we saw last week or two weeks or however many weeks ago it was we were looking at psalm 2 
everything will be brought under his feet. The Lord Jesus is the inevitable destination of everything and everyone, and he is in you. In verse 15, Paul says that he is the revelation of God. He is the image of the invisible God. All that God has to show us about himself, all that he is, is in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is pleased to show himself in him. John 1 verse 18 says, No one has seen God at any time. But the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has preached him. He has revealed him. This immeasurable, eternal, immortal, all-powerful God, Jesus, is in you, believer. What more could you want? How do the theories of perfection stand up to this? The one who, although God, who opposes and hates and despises all evil, he makes peace by the death on his cross. This glorious king who is spirit takes upon himself flesh, enters this world, walks among us, bears our sin. That Christ is in you. We have this in Philippians in chapter 2, some absolutely wonderful words by the same apostle. He says, Jesus Christ, who being the form of God, did not consider it to be rob robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He took on himself the form of a slave, and coming in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death even the death of the cross. And this, Jesus Christ, Paul says, is in you, if you are a believer. Into the scene walks Mr. Philosopher, who buys that theory of perfection about learning and knowledge, remember. And he says, yes, you're right, we were saved by Jesus Christ. Bless his name. He is God. Praise him. But now, don't you think we really ought to get a bit on in the Christian life? That's the very beginning. Don't you think we should think our way beyond him now? Don't you think we should get to higher things than that which we very first started with? Then we can achieve the hope of glory. Paul says, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the traditions of men, and not according to Christ. He's dragging us back all the time. The legalist walks in. He says, yes, you're right, Paul. Jesus has forgiven our sin. He's saved us. There's no more sin in my life. He's made me holy in his sight. But don't you think we should earn that now? Don't you think we should earn that? Top up the righteousness? Don't you think we should live a righteous life and earn that hope of glory? Paul says, absolutely not. Let no one judge you 
in food or in drink, or in regarding festivals or new moons or Sabbaths. These are just shadows of things to come. But the substance is Christ. Dragging us back to Jesus Christ all the time. What about the freedom fighters? If we can call them that. They come in and they say, yes, Jesus Christ has set us free from the law. He set us free from those things. And now we must really live the spirit-led life of lawlessness, living as we like. Then we can truly realize the hope of a true glory. Paul says in chapter 3, you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you shall appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death in your members on the earth those things that are unclean, uh, the fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, and all sorts of sins. He says, Jesus Christ is the one that makes the difference in the Christian life. He is the only theory of perfection. He is enough. The next word, Christ in you, the next word is in. Now I'm going to confess to you this evening that I'm absolutely shocking at Greek. I'm no good at it, okay? But I know this much. The word here, in, is not sentimental. It's not poetic. It's barely metaphorical. It's serious. It's meaningful. In John 17 and verse 21, the Lord Jesus is praying to his Father and he's praying to him, asking him that we, Christians, may be one as they are one. He says, like I am in you and you are in me, that I may be in them, that they may be in us. The Lord Jesus and the Apostle Paul both say to us that it's the living God, Jesus Christ, who lives inside Christians. Here's a brain teaser. Why doesn't Paul just leave it at the sufficiency of Christ? Why doesn't Paul come to these theories and say, Jesus Christ is enough for you? Why does he have to go so far as to say that he's in you? Surely the sufficiency of Christ should be enough. If Jesus Christ is in you, then he is presently sufficient. He's enough for you today, right now, here, in your seat. You don't even have to go anywhere. All three of those theories portray God our Father and his glory and his kingdom to be far away. If I can think myself holy or get loads of knowledge and understand all of the isms and all of the theology and read all of the books, maybe I can reach that glory. If I live a holy life, if I do all the right things and don't do all the wrong things and be completely perfectly moral in all my ways, maybe I can earn my way to that really far distant realm of the glory of God. And the same can be said of that lawlessness theory. But Paul says this is nonsense. You don't realize your privilege as Christians, he says. 
Christ, who is the image of God, who is the glory of God in the body. He is not far from you. He is in you, he says. You have already received him. All you need to do is continue in him. If you look at chapter 2 and verse 6 for a moment, see these wonderful words where Paul says, as you therefore, now he's speaking to you here, he says, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Now what movement do you read in that verse? How much do we move? Where do we move? We don't go anywhere once we're saved. We bury our roots deep into Christ. We grow up on the spot like a skyscraper. We grow straight up in Christ. We are walking around in him. We never leave that spot. Jesus Christ, the rock on which we're saved, we never get off it. Please do not buy the rubbish that is quite common that you can think your way beyond Jesus, that you can earn for yourself in your life a hope of glory, or that it can be had here and now by sinful living. The scriptures tell us that Jesus is the hope of glory, and he lives inside you now, Christian. He is enough for you now. Paul says, you are complete in him because he is in you. Talking of you, that's the next word. Christ in you. Perhaps this is another silly question. Who is this? Well, we already identified, didn't we, at the beginning, that Paul is writing to the Christians in Colossae, chapter 1 and verse uh, 2. When you look at verse 6 and chapter 1, verse 26, you can see that he's making this application universal. He's speaking to you. He says that the Lord Jesus Christ lives in all believers by his Holy Spirit. Jews and Gentiles, Paul says, slaves and masters, men and women, young and old, brand spanking new, just born again yesterday Christians, and the old mature giants of the faith who have been Christians for decades living in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says they are all inhabited by the Holy Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. He lives inside all believers without exception. Christ in you. You get that impression, don't you, in chapter 1 with the repetition of the word all things. All things are Christ's. You are Christ's. He is in all of his people. It's quite wonderful, isn't it? That the Lord Jesus Christ was not satisfied to bring back the lost ones of Israel and restore the sons of Jacob, but he was given as a light to the Gentiles to be the salvation of God, the hope of glory to the ends of the earth. He was not satisfied with Jerusalem. He wants Cardiff. He was not satisfied with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He wants you and he wants your children and your whole family. 
He wants to be in you to be your hope of glory, to be enough for you. The hope of glory. Now that sounds wonderful, doesn't it? But what is it? I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. Is it hope like that? I hope that my friend doesn't realise that I'm still logged in on their Netflix. Is it like that sort of hope? I hope the Six Nations doesn't get locked down again. Is it that sort of hope? Thankfully not. This is how Paul the Apostle, the same writer, speaks about hope. I'll just read this verse to you. Romans chapter 5 and verse 5 says, Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Hope does not disappoint. He puts it even more strongly in Titus chapter 1 where he says, Hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised before time began. It's certain anticipation. It is absolutely sure. In comes Mr. Knowledge, Mr. Philosophy, Mr. Law, and Mr. Antinomianism, Mr. Lawlessness. And they're saying, if, 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 I can't sleep. It has to, I have to earn my way to God's glory. I have to learn my way to God's glory. I have to experience my way to God's glory. And I can't sleep because if I don't do this, I don't get glory. And Paul, he says to him, what is the matter with you? What is the matter with you? There is no if and or but. Jesus Christ is enough for you. Look there at chapter 1, verse 22. In, in his flesh, through death, he will present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If Jesus Christ is in you this evening, that glory is as good as had. And you can sleep well. There is no if. Finally then, glory. Because our time is running short here. What is this glory that the Lord Jesus Christ gives us a sure and certain anticipation of? Well, that's an absolutely enormous question. So you'll uh, forgive me, I'm sure, for not exhausting the answer to that. But uh, let's put it like this. The Colossians were all after it. You and I are after it for sure. The whole world is after it. This glory, this perfection, this holiness without which nobody will see God, the ultimate peace, the final dwelling with God. That's what we're all after, however we define it, isn't it? That which we strive to learn, that which we strive to earn by piety or experience, by lawlessness. Paul says, Christian, that is yours already. Do not stress. Do not worry. Do not lose sight of that. Abide in Jesus Christ. The hope of glory is yours. He writes in Ephesians, doesn't he? That the Lord, our God, he, he raised us from death to life in Jesus Christ and he has seated us 
in the heavenly places with Christ, it's a present reality. This glory is ours. It is certainly ours. You know, one day, our blessed Saviour, he will come again for his people. The sky will roll back like a scroll. Sin will just be gone. We'll see him. We'll be made like him when we see him, for we'll see him as he is. Sin will be over. If we have died before that point in Jesus Christ, we'll be raised from the dead to meet him with all of our brothers and sisters who have gone ahead of us. And when we see him, we will be glorified. He who is the hope of glory will come for us, his people, who, in whom he has lived for all of our lives as Christians. And he will glorify us. What is our assurance? How can we be sure of that fact? How do I know that I will be there? Is it because I have finally learned how to spell resurrection? How many R's there are? Is it because I've read so many books on glorification? Is it because since being saved, not a drop of alcohol has passed my lips? Or that I've never gone to this place? Or I've never spoken to that person? Or I've never watched that film? Is it by our good works that we are assured of our glorification? Is it because since we were set free from the law, we ran from the law, head and toes hurtling away from it, and into a sinful life to prove the furthest extent of Jesus' forgiveness? The assurance of our glory is Jesus Christ, our Saviour, who lives in us, he perfects us. He achieves that in us which he started. All those things, learning and holy living and exercising our liberty that Christ has given to us are good things. But none of them are the assurance of our glory. That is exclusively and only our Saviour. Christ in you is your hope of glory and nothing else. No learning, no particular church, no piety or lawlessness, only Christ. All you need is Christ living in you. So let me close with this. What do we do then? What do we do? After reading an epistle like this or hearing, hearing a sermon like this, perhaps we can feel a bit aimless. What do I do then? How do I strive for perfection then? Is all I do now sit in my pew and wait for Jesus to glorify me? Here's what you do do. You ready? Once you have received the forgiveness of your sins in the Lord Jesus Christ, once you put your faith in him and been saved, once all of your sins have been washed away by his blood that he shed on the cross for us, once he becomes your saviour, stay where you are. Don't move. Put your roots down into him. 
grow up in him. Walk around and explore him. Get to know him. Dig deep into him. Fully please him and walk worthy of him with a life that is full of good works done in his name and by his power. Explore every inch of this wonderful salvation, this perfect hope of glory, this free, this light, wonderful life that he has given to us, this assurance of resurrection, this freedom from sin. Explore that, know that, love that, and love him. That's what you do to become perfect. You live your life with the Lord Jesus loving him with every thought, with every word, with every deed, with all of your strength, your heart, your soul and your mind. Love him to bits. That is what will make you perfect. He will. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let us pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we bless and praise your wonderful name for the gift of your Son to us, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we confess, Lord, with your word and with the assurance of your Spirit that the Lord Jesus Christ, he is enough for me. He is enough He washes away all of my sin and all of my guilt. He dresses me in a robe of perfect righteousness. And I need add nothing to his work. I thank you, Father. We bless you for the gift of Christ who is our hope, our sure and certain anticipation of the glory of the kingdom of God. We bless you for him who is enough for us. We plead with you, Father, that you should grant his perfection to us. And to that end, Lord, we beg you to wean us from our uh, sick addiction, Lord, like a dog to vomit, uh, of trying to earn our way into this perfection, to trying to learn our way beyond the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, give us him. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is more than life to me. May that be true of all of us, we pray. Father, fill us with a thrill and a love of a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Make us walk worthy of him with lives that are filled with good works. Let us love him with all that we have. For his own name's sake. Amen.